entitled Love Isn't Blind and looking at different kinds of relationships and sometimes our unrealistic expectations. And it's connected to uh, a whole thing that Jesus says, our theme for the year. We went up a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted and they came to him, they responded and he appointed 12 and we're actually gonna talk a little bit about who he appointed in today's message, that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And from that, our theme for the year is knowing God more, growing in our faith and in our relationships and then being sown into workplaces, other relationships and making a difference in our world. And today, um, in the middle of the series, this message is in two parts. So you have to come back next week or at least jump online and watch it. And it's in the connection of love isn't blind relationships when we don't agree. And this is part one. And this message is actually going to be a little bit different because I'm setting it up for next week. I'm sure you'll get something out of it for this week. If I don't do that, don't email me. Jesus said something that is incredibly challenging. He said a lot of things. But in John 13 and verse 34 and following, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's a real challenge. Not just love one another, but he says, love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I want you to notice Jesus speaks to the group. He speaks inside, but he says what happens inside, how you relate to each other inside this faith community will affect how people perceive you who are outside this faith community. And what we do in our relationships is really important. And so much of our society makes it so narrow and insular and almost the individual elevated being far more important than community. And God, I believe in the scripture, puts a balance there. Like Jesus' disciples, we live in some really complicated times. And you see in their stories, which are told very openly and of the New Testament church, they weren't this perfect group. They were at times plagued with fear, had a sense of weakness and being overwhelmed by circumstances. Occasionally, one or two were quite arrogant and filled with pride. They displayed anger. At one time, the sons of Zebedee, literally the sons of thunder, wanted to call down lightning on people that disagreed with what Jesus was doing. And they were engaged simply because they lived on the planet with all sorts of political intrigues. I don't mean they were the source of them, but the stuff that was going on in their world was astonishing. And there were disagreements and controversies and incredible divisions. And we kind of have this picture that everything was kind of pristine, that everything in the New Testament church was all lovely. And in fact, in Acts chapter 15, there was a disagreement and, and people were sharing their opinions. And Luke simply says, and I love this, his understatement, and there was no small dispute. In other words, there was one massive row that went on, but they worked it through. And they came to a resolution. We are caught up in our society with culture wars, climate wars, woke wars, 
all sorts of things. And I'm not asking you today to change your belief on some of those things. I'm speaking to something bigger than that as a community of faith. And the difference between ancient times is that we've got all this technology where we can vent and post things and make comments and become keyboard warriors. And I find it sad sometimes what is said by people who don't know Jesus, but even sadder when I see some things that are posted by people who do know Jesus, when they disagree with somebody. And we need to remember that people are never our enemy. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And when he talks about rulers and authorities, he's not talking about people. He's talking about there's a whole thing going on in the spiritual realm that affects what's going on planet earth so Jesus called to him those that he wanted and they came to him and then Matthew lists the disciples and I want to talk a little bit about this group that he called to him that he wanted them to be with him and that he was going to send out with the good news of the kingdom of God Jesus called his 12 to him Matthew 10 and following Verse one and following. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, who is the apostle John who writes the gospel and the epistles, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, who doubted, who questioned, who was uncertain, as much as Peter was opinionated, Thomas displayed uncertainty at times, but came to incredible faith in Jesus, brought the gospel to India and was uh, martyred for his faith. Matthew, the tax collector, ooh. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we find in these disciples, five of them are fishermen, there's a tax collector and the others, we don't really know what their occupation was, but they came mainly from Galilee and either would have been involved in farming or something like that, or maybe on an industry around the Sea of Galilee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, worked with their father and partnered with Peter and Andrew in a fishing enterprise. And it was actually quite a significant one. It was enough of a small business that when they started following Jesus, they could hire people to help their dad who was left with a fishing fleet on the Sea of Galilee. And what we need to understand, and this is what we're going to drop into, is a little bit different from a normal message is that there was a cultural war going on between the Jews and Greek culture, the Gentiles, the Greek culture. And the Greek culture is tied to Hellenism and what Alexander the Great, he was an evangelist for Greek culture and the influence still affects our modern society to this day. Some of them, like Philip, had Greek names, which meant they'd been exposed to Hellenism or Greek culture and influenced by it that adopted Greek names. 
Jesus and many of his disciples grew up in Galilee, both around the Sea of Galilee and the larger part of Galilee, which was under the rule of Herod Antipas. And he was a champion for Hellenizing, influencing Greek culture upon his citizens. So they'd definitely been exposed to it. We, we see it even coming up in the book of Acts, this clash between traditional Jewish background and Jews who'd been influenced by Hellenism or Greek culture. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, and at this stage, it's amongst Jewish people, it's not yet the gospel going to the Gentiles, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So you've got, and, and those who embraced this Hellenistic culture were kind of modernists, free thinking, more open to new ideas. And then there's this really conservative, the, the, the Hebraic Jews who are hanging on to the Jewish culture and fighting for it with everything they got. And there's this clash over this, this instance is the widow's not being looked after properly. And the big question was, how Greek can you be and still be Jewish? That was the big argument in Jewish culture at the time. And in a way, the question in our society is, how modern and trendy can you be and open to some of the things that are happening in our culture and still be Christian? That's still the discussion in a way. But I want to just center to try and illustrate something on the story of two of the disciples that are really stand out. And in fact, Matthew highlights them and he actually highlights himself. Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi. Matthew as a tax collector would have been one of the most despised people in the whole of Israel and beyond for that matter. Religious Jews, combining temple taxes and everything else, could pay up to 80% of the income in seven different taxes. And Matthew's responsible for collecting around five of them. And what happened, the, the, the name tax collector actually literally is translated tax farmer. And what they would do would bid every few years to be a tax collector and guarantee Rome a certain amount of money over the understanding whatever they could get over and above, they could keep. And so they literally employed thugs to help them collect the taxes. And when Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector down in Jericho on a major trade route, says, if I've cheated anybody, it's like, really, if? There's no if about it, buddy. And so Matthew is hated because he is collaborating with Rome, ripping his own people off, working with Gentiles is an unclean, and he couldn't even come near the temple to worship. He is so isolated on the fringe of his society. And Jesus' inclusion of somebody like a tax collector amongst his disciples is not only astonishing, but would have been offensive to the Jewish people of the day. Listen to the story. As Jesus, this is Matthew 9, Matthew's calling, Levi's calling. As, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. 
Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, I want you to notice something, you'll pick it up in the scriptures, that, that tax collectors had their own category. They weren't just sinners, they were notable sinners. They were tax collectors and sinners. And it's making this point about how despised they were. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they're the more conservative group in, in Jewish society at that time. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then, moving on from Matthew, there's Simon the Zealot. The name Zealot applied to devoted Jewish freedom fighters. The Romans viewed them as terrorists, creating an uprising, but in Jewish society, they were these freedom fighters. They were trying to kick Rome out. And, and it was over the first century AD that all of this is swirling, that there's the 400 silent years between the Old Testament, Malachi, and the New Testament, but it's not silent. It is tumultuous, the things that are going on in this ancient world. And to them, violence was completely justified as long as it accomplished getting rid of the Roman occupation. And the theological basis, because they had an Old Testament perspective on this, where the activity, for their activities came from a man called Phineas. I'm just going to touch on him briefly. And then the Maccabees, and I'll touch on that briefly. We're doing all right? Yeah. So Phineas, he's Aaron, the high priest's grandson, and is a priest himself. And it's at the time when Balaam the prophet is... Uh, employed by Barak, who's the king of Moab, who's threatened by Israel, who's still wandering down the wilderness. They haven't got into the promised land yet and wants Balaam to curse them. And three times he tries to curse them and blessing comes out of his mouth. But he still wants the money. So what he does, he said, look, I can't curse them because every time I speak, God puts other words in my mouth. But I tell you, send your woman in amongst them. And you'll corrupt them and God will judge them is basically his advice. And it says here in Numbers 25 that while the Israelites were camped at the Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves having sexual relations with local Moabite women. And it also says these women were introducing them to foreign gods. And a, a plague breaks out in which 24,000 people die from this plague. And Phineas sees a man, Jewish man, sleeping, having intercourse with a Midianite woman in a tent, and he picks up a spear and runs them through, pins them to the ground, killing them, and instantly the plague stops. And based on that zeal, that passion for God, the zealots drew something. That's the kind of people we are. We'll run people through if we are defending God's honor, if we're staying true to the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. And if we can get people out of the land, they refer to Israel as the land. We need the land back. And so this fueled a whole lot of stuff 
through Jewish history. And you come to the 400 so-called silent years and the rising up of the Maccabees. And again, forgive the, the brief history lesson and it's very broad brushstrokes. But following the death of Alexander the Great, who conquered a large part of that part of the known world, and when he died, his generals divided his kingdom amongst themselves. And for around 40 years, there was a struggle as to who was gonna control one. And after 40 years, Ptolemy I, based in Egypt, ruled what became the Ptolemaic Empire and dynasty. And then there was Seleucus I, who reigned from around Syria, Mesopotamia, and a little bit of Asia Minor. And he founded the Seleucid dynasty. And there's a map up there. Yeah, it's good every so often to look at Bible maps and work out where things are. So you can see the Ptolemaic kingdom here, based out of um, Egypt and North Africa, and then the Seleucid empire up there. And in between is Israel. It's a land bridge between three continents. And some historians said living in Israel is like living on a super highway. You get run over every so often by emerging powers and the changing political nuances in the ancient world. And the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic Empire fought over Israel for a long period of time. Under the Ptolemaic dynasty, they treated the Jews with a lot of kindness, a lot of freedom. Many of the Jews went and settled in Alexandria. And it was there that they actually translated the Old Testament into Greek, known as the Septuagint. And Israel enjoyed, under the Ptolemies, a long period of prosperity, peace, and relative freedom. And they were allowed to rule their own land, and it was done through the high priest. And it's actually how the high priesthood became and the, the high priest became so politicized in Jesus' time. And they became the Sadducees, who were highly political, incredibly wealthy because of what they'd done. But then Antiochus the Great conquered Israel in 168 BC. There's going to be a test on this afterwards. And now they came under the Seleucid Empire and they were obsessed with Hellenistic culture. They were carrying on, in their mind, Alexander's the great evangelism of Greek culture. December 6, 167 BC, Antiochus committed a, a blasphemy that was horrendous in Jewish minds. He defeated those who were defending Jerusalem, walked into the temple, took a whole lot of things away, and you can see there's, no, actually later, there's a thing, another one. Sorry, jumping ahead with the slides. And he erected a statue of Zeus, and then 10 days later, on the altar, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, and then built an altar to Jupiter. He totally, it was, it was so offensive, incredibly. But the oppressed Jews under them were not long in finding a champion. And he sent emissaries out to all the towns and villages to make sure they were getting rid of anything that tied them to Jewish culture. He was gonna bring 
this Hellenistic Greek culture to them. And he came to a little village called Modin, which is about 15 miles from Jerusalem. And there was an aging priest, Matthias, and he was expected to set the example by offering a sacrifice to Zeus and the Greek gods. And when Matthias refused, one of the villagers came forward to offer the sacrifice. And Matthias was so incensed, he picked up the knife, killed what he in his mind was this backsliding Jewish person and the embassy and started the Maccabean rebellion. And they actually threw off the Seleucid Empire and had a hundred years of freedom where they were self-governing. His son, Judas Maccabeus, was a military genius and threw them off and they had this hundred years of freedom. And these two things, Phineas, story from Numbers, this experience, we can do this. And they form the very core of the zealots. And the zealots had seven key points of belief. Number one, Israel was a theocracy, which means it should be ruled by God. Second, you serve no one but God. Third, slavery is idolatry. And so hence in the Jewish wars, many of them would rather die than be taken and made slaves under Rome. So you choose death before slavery. Next, the land, as they refer to it, belonged to the Jews, and we've got to get all these foreigners out of the land. And therefore, Rome's occupation was illegitimate, and we don't pay taxes. Everybody should cheer at that point. Because taxation legitimizes government. You can take that away and think about it for a little bit. And the, ze- the, the, the symbol for the zealots was a palm branch. Now just think of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the people laying down palm branches. They are thinking Jesus is going to be the leader who gets rid of Rome. And the zealots are going, let's do it. And then he dies on a cross and blows their mind completely. This fervor was so much, and I'm just touching this briefly to illustrate it, that in the Jewish wars, 66 AD to 76, recorded by Josephus, the fighting was horrendous. One of the first battles was at Gamala, which means camel hump. And if you, on the north uh, eastern side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, looking up towards the Golan Heights, you could see Gamala. And they had a zealot fortress there for a long time and Rome basically ignored them. They'd march past them on a highway, roadway from Damascus, but ignore them. But at night, you could see the fires from the encampment. There were about up to 10,000 zealots camped there. It could have been as much as that. And maybe Jesus, when he said, a city set on the hill cannot be hid. There's this fire, you can't. You're ignoring them, but you can't really. And it was one of the first battles in the Zealot Wars. And it was so fierce, the fighting, that about 9,000 Jews were killed and a Roman legion, which is around 11,000, one of the most elite Roman legions, was never heard of again because they were destroyed in the battle. 
The battle then moved down, and there was one on the Sea of Galilee, moved down to the Herodian, and then on down to, into Jerusalem. And when Titus the general conquered Jerusalem, he stripped the temple bare, murdered so many people. And there's actually a relief of an arch that was built in his honor, showing the spoils coming out of Jerusalem. If we just put that next slide up, you can, I don't know if you can see that. You can see them carrying the, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the whole lot of things as he took and, and spoiled and wrecked Jerusalem. They set fires under archways because Jerusalem is built out of limestone and there's water in limestone and setting fires and the, literally as it expands, it explodes because there's a buildup of steam in the rock. And he, that's why it says, it burnt Jerusalem to the ground. And then the battle went down to the Rhodium and ultimately to Masada, where there's, you can look that up, the battle there, this siege mound, you can see this desert fortress that Herod had built. And it was almost impregnable, but eventually, and uh, up to 900 of them committed a form of suicide rather than being taken slaves and dishonoring God. I'm just trying to explain. Matthew, the tax collector, collaborating with Rome, Simon the Zealot, and Jesus says to both of them, follow me. Can you imagine some of the conversations that would have been taking place on the road? As Jesus tries to explain to them, I'm not here to build an earthly kingdom. I'm building a heavenly kingdom. And I wish sometimes some of the things he would have said to them were recorded. But what he does say to them and to us, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. And so these diverse People, backgrounds, on the extremes politically. Surrender, maybe I'm not suggesting they surrendered all their beliefs or their hopes or their aspirations. I'm not suggesting they were kind of all brainwashed to only believe a single thing. But they actually, in following Jesus, found something in him and started to see something in each other where together, they preached the gospel after Jesus' resurrection and glorification. You see, this unity and disagreement is nothing new in the church, sadly. The Corinthians were divided over which leader they preferred. And some were of this one and some were of that one. And then there were the super sparrows that said, no, we just follow Jesus. And Paul speaks to them about their factions and divisions. When he writes to the church at Galatia, he says, some of you are biting and devouring each other with your arguments and your attitudes. To the saints at Ephesus and Colossae, he reminds them of the importance of unity. And listen to how he does it. Ephesians 4, verse 2 to 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep 
the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is this bond of peace? Completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing, literally putting up with each other sometimes in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, the bond of peace. Well, earlier in Ephesians, Paul explains the bond of peace. Ephesians 2 verse 14, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And it's not just talking about peace with God, it's about peace with each other. If you follow through the passage, I'm just gonna highlight one or two things quickly. That for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing it in his flesh, the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in the one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In the structure of the language, he himself is our peace, is the dominant controlling thought in everything that follows. He himself, Jesus himself is our peace. And then is these words that connect to it. He has made, he has destroyed, and he has abolished. What has he made? Out of all the divisions, one new humanity. That's where we are. From all our backgrounds, our opinions about things, our perspective on things, our cultural differences, we are Jesus, one new humanity. He's destroyed the barriers doesn't mean we don't have misunderstandings or differ on opinions about all the stuff that's going on in our world. But the divisions, the walls came tumbling down by what Jesus did on the cross. And in it, in his suffering, in his death, he abolished hostility. So let's not rebuild the walls. and discover again the hostility. I'm gonna talk next week about how to disagree in an agreeable manner. Through the cross, we're gonna do communion. Through the cross, he put to death the hostility. And just 
a thought, a question. If we engaged in hostility, it's all right to disagree. In fact, it's healthy to disagree and have some healthy discussions. We're not talking about that. We're talking about hostility, aggression. If we're involved in that, is it because we're no longer looking at the cross? And is it because we are no longer together sitting at the feet of Jesus and letting His Lordship influence our lives, our attitudes, so we can be humble and gentle and patient and hang on to unity in this bond of peace that Jesus created. Peace with God and peace with each other. That's what He sought to accomplish on the cross. 